Hey, welcome to the AOL Podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message with Pastor Travis Bennett. Pray together, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word that brings insight, that brings revelation, that uh, takes the veil away. And Lord, uh, the wisdom that comes from your word, I thank you, God, that tonight uh, that you would just open eyes and ears to see. I just pray that, uh, Lord, as we study this, I pray that there's something in here that grabs. Lord, as we study the life of Paul and how he dealt with the critics in his life, um, I, I just pray, Lord, that we would grab a hold of this. Lord, I know we all have critics, or if there's critics around the corner ready to criticize us. But, Lord, he did it with such, um, such character. And so, Lord, I just pray that that would get on us tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a few things. I want to let you guys know this. The first week of June, the first Sunday in June, we are going to switch our service times on Sunday mornings from 9 to 1045. And those of you that come to the second service, you know it gets kind of bottlenecked right up in here um, between the services. And we, we, um, we're just believing that until we expand in Jesus' name. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna ex- extend that out so it's not as cram packed. Hopefully, and also it helps out our children's church workers uh, to get in the right place at the right time. So just pushing it back from ten thirty to ten forty five. If you come to nine o'clock, don't even don't even ignore what ignore this message exactly. All right, and also too, uh, I really thought that tonight would be my last night, but I got one more. I, I couldn't. Listen, tonight, how many pages? 14 tonight. And so um, I'll try to do my best not to bore you guys. Have you guys learned something out of the life of Paul? I hope you have. There's been so much inside of this that um, the Lord has revealed to me. And so next week will be the last one, and then we'll have our first Wednesday, and then there'll be no Bible school through the summertime. We'll pick back up in September. All right? Let's go. By the time we reach the middle of Acts 21... All three of Paul's missionary journeys have ended. He is back in Jerusalem by now. That bustling city was familiar familiar to him as Tarsus, his hometown. Right? Because he's gone so many times. The visit began in a spirit of delightful joy. Paul greeted the brethren as they welcomed him back and they glorified God together for the thing which God had done among the Gentiles. I'm going to go ahead and give you this right off the bat. I am going to go kind of give you a paraphrase from chapter 21, 22, and 23. And I really want to nail on 24 tonight. That's will be our most of our topic tonight. When he goes before, uh, um, not Festus, but Felix. He goes before Felix tonight. And then next week we'll talk about how he goes before Festus and uh, King Agrippa. So in Acts 21, 19, it says, When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Unfortunately, the celebrating ended quickly, Luke writes, like it always does with Paul. Acts 21, 27 says, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Yeah, they did. How many of y'all as believers have wanted to lay hands on other people? Can I get an amen? All right. The Lord has called me to lay hands on you just like this. All right. The party was over. Paul's enemies from Asia had followed him all the way back to Jerusalem. After seeing him in the temple, they decided that 
they had endured enough of his menacing presence. They devised a murderous plot to rid themselves of Paul once and for all. This poor guy can't catch a break. Keep in mind, these aren't disgruntled souls who simply disagree with him intellectually or who wish to confront him on a few of the finer points of his theology. They have murder on their minds, so they incited the crowd shouting. We see in verse 28 29 of chapter 21, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Once again, they leveled criticism, not based on facts, not thinking straight. They were building a head of steam among the crowd, hoping to arouse the support for a stoning. The commander of the Roman cohort quickly received word. Verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Talk about exaggeration. That's all the Roman official needed to hear. Rome despises uprisings. By now, of course, the mob was out of control. The beating of Paul was so severe, he almost reached the point of unconsciousness. It must have been a terrifying experience. Thankfully, word of the riot reached the ears of the Roman cohort responsible for maintaining order in Jerusalem. He didn't need another bad report going back to Rome, so he acted promptly. And it was a good thing for Paul. He ordered his soldiers and centurions to mount up and head for the center of town. Centurions were seasoned officers in the Roman guard, responsible for 100 armed men. Within a few minutes, several hundred of those armed men on horseback came upon the scene and could see Paul being beaten by the crowd. There's something about a large police force in uniform on horseback that breaks up a crowd, right? The beating stopped immediately. Paul stood there dazed, bruised, and bleeding. The Roman official, simply by doing his job, had saved the apostle's life. In Acts 21, 34, it says, And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. Antonius barracks would be the safest place for Paul. Just then something startling happened. We see in verse 35 through 39. When he reached the stairs, he had, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city. I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. How is that for straight thinking? Paul figured this was his opportunity not only to speak to the crowd, but also to build a relationship with the Roman commander. You can't think any straighter than that. The cohort is surprised that Paul is not the infamous troublemaker from Egypt. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, this is great, tells us that three years earlier an Egyptian appeared in Jerusalem claiming to be a prophet. He managed to recruit several thousand men to help overthrow Roman rule. The Romans narrowly escaped a coup by stamping out the uprising. 
Paul denied any connection to that scene. He also spoke to the officer in Greek, informing him that he hailed from Tarsus and was, in fact, a citizen in good standing. What he wanted more than anything was an opportunity to proclaim Christ to the hissing mob. I find this to be amazing. Talk about wisdom under pressure. Most of us would have sought a secure place to hide and call for an attorney. Not Paul. Once again, to him, this is just another opportunity to talk to these people. Put yourself in the story. A hush falls on the crowd as the Roman official gives him the nod that it is okay. He speaks in Aramaic, the language amongst Palestinian Jews. He had just finished speaking Greek, and now he speaks fluent Aramaic to begin his defense. What an amazing scene. The man didn't miss a beat. The mob, now a bit more subdued, listens carefully. Chapter 22. Brethren, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. These people have to be thinking so far, so good, our kind of guy. They are all on the same theological page. They, too, were Jews. They, too, despised the Christians. Nothing he said so far gives them cause for alarm. Then we get to verse 19. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was, your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Did he say Gentiles? Yes. The man dropped the G word. Boom. That's all the crazy crowd had needed to hear. What an explosion. They had heard enough. This man is concerned about the Gentiles. We don't talk to Gentiles. Remember in the very beginning when I was talking to you guys, he was raised in a Jewish home that would say this. We are Jews. Thank God we're Jews and not Gentiles. They hated Gentiles. We refused to live among the Gentiles. Gentiles were like a pack of wild dogs, feral cats. That's all it took. The place erupted in dust. The Roman commander stepped in and rescued Paul, ordering him to be brought inside the barracks and preparing for a flogging. He was determined to teach the preacher a lesson. Paul was stretched over a stump, wrists and ankles bound with leather, leather wraps. In only a few moments, Paul would feel the stinging smack of the bone-edged straps tearing into his already scarred back. Though about to be scourged, his keen mind never once flinched. This is so good. Managing to turn his head and speak in the direction of his tormentor, Paul calmly asked. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Again, is that not some straight thinking under pressure or what? Imagine the shock of many faces. He had no clue the man was a Roman citizen. They immediately reported to the cohort who promptly halted the torture. Under Roman law, citizens were not to be tortured without a trial. They were on the verge of committing an infraction punishable by death. Lysias, the cohort commander, this is what he says. With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. 
Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The issue would not go to the Jews' Supreme Court. Straight thinking again paid off for the man of God. Another kangaroo court scene opens in Acts 23 with an emergency meeting on the Sanhedrin. Lysias, after escorting Paul to the judging chamber, waiting outside the door. We pick it up in verses 1 through 5 of 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is pretty bold of a guy that just hit him in the mouth. For you sit to judge me according to the law and do not command me to be struck contrary to the law. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil for a ruler of your people. Realizing his mistake, Paul sought to make amends. He had not forgotten, though, the present danger. Again, with a straight head with faith, it prevailed over fear. He quickly devised a clever escape plan. Knowing that the room was full of Sadducees and Pharisees, he decided to divide and conquer. In verse 6, it says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. The place erupted in confusion as if Pharisees and Sadducees were pitted against each other. Sadducees were rationalists and did not believe in angels or supernatural things, let alone resurrection. Pharisees believed in all the above. Paul's strategy worked beautifully. Meanwhile, Lysias, the Roman cohort, was having a moment outside the door. He hears yet another uproar inside the judging chamber. Nothing was working for this guy. His only solution was to keep Paul behind bars until he could come up with a workable, safe plan. Once again, Paul lands hard onto the floor of a damp Roman dungeon. He wouldn't be alone for long. Sitting alone in the barracks, having had his lights punched out by a mob, Paul may have wondered if any of it mattered. He hung his head in prayer when suddenly... Everybody say, suddenly... Verse 11, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You know what this is? Look again at the statement with the single quotation marks. That's a promise. The Lord once again assured Paul of his continued safety. In addition, Rome would be his destination. What comfort that must have been to the man who, again, bore the marks of a torturous treatment. Survival may seem next to impossible until the Lord intervenes. At that point, we always realize he has a bigger plan than we could possibly have imagined. Often in the midst of great pain, on the hills of mistreatment, the Lord appears in his word, providing peace through his spirit. He whispers, I've got everything under control. You're right where you're supposed to be. Just if you've served me faithfully here, you're going to be my witness there. Amazing, isn't it? About the time Paul might think it's curtains in Jerusalem. 
he's done in, in, in Jerusalem, he, he's promised a guaranteed ticket to Rome. I think Paul slept good that night. Divine reassurance is a great cure for insomnia. But while Paul dreamed of Rome, a murderous conspiracy was being plotted against him. His Jewish enemies planned an ambush, vowing not to eat or drink until the apostle was dead. But once again, the Lord had a plan of his own. We see in verse 12 through 17, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you before he comes near. So when Paul's sister heard of this, their ambush, he went and entered the barracks. Sorry, sorry. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Where's this guy coming from? Right? Then Paul <clears throat> called one of... I didn't even know he had a sister. So then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Not one, but 40 assassins. 40 determined terrorists operating under cover of secrecy. All of them vowing not to eat or drink until he is dead. The plan was treacherous and set in motion by those who wanted him dead. What they hadn't counted on was an unlikely ally for Paul. His nephew had overheard everything and made tracks to warn his uncle. Remarkably, Paul's nephew plays a major role in his survival. He is not mentioned by name, and we never hear of him again. Then how did he know about the ambush? Only God knows. Don't you love this story? Lots of times we look over this. The Lord, who neither slumbers nor sleeps and and always is at work on behalf of his own, pulls a nephew from the middle of the ambush plot. It's impossible. It's possible the youth overheard the plot while standing among them. Perhaps he got word of the plan from an informant. It doesn't matter. The good news is that he believed it was true and did something about it. Meanwhile, the Roman commander was feeling relieved. Proud of his wise handling of the situation, his musings were interrupted by a reluctant knock at the door. The news couldn't be good. One of his centurions report that the young man with him has some important information about a conspiracy to kill Paul. The Roman commander wasn't about to let some scrappy band of fanatics spoil his plan to bring Paul safely to Rome. So he pulled out all the stops. Verse 22, so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set, set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So do the math. 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen and two centurions. That is 472 bodyguards. Talk about overkill. The guy would not be outdone. He made sure no one could get to Paul. Remember God's promise to Paul? You must witness to Rome. This is just part of the divine plan. It was as if God said, I know what I'm doing. I will escort you down to Caesarea by the sea with full protection. You are in my hand, a massive official escort that would work just fine.
What an amazing part of Scripture. Despite the odds stacked against him, Paul was never removed from God's protective hand. And neither are you. Are you feeling alone, mistreated, misunderstood, or forsaken? Remember this story. God's at work. He's there working behind the scenes. He will work it out. He has a plan. Just when you're convinced the bottom is about to drop out from under you, he steps in and lifts you to safety. For Paul, he used an unlikely and anonymous ally, a nameless nephew who came out of the shadows at precisely the right time. God's timing is always perfectly synchronized with his will. Remember that. By dawn, Paul was en route to see the governor. Safely surrounded by 472 bodyguards, next stop, Caesarea by the sea. The Lord is in charge of this man's life, but you wouldn't know it if you looked around for visible evidence. From the time the Lord visits him in a vision until the last trial, you do not see Paul anxious or uneasy. He gives every evidence of being perfectly relaxed. God's promises are true. Paul fixed his mind on what God had said, firmly believing it was true. We have got a lot to learn. So now we get to verses, or chapter 24. This is where we, we're going to stay here. Uh, next week we'll get to chapter 25. But this is, this is some good stuff right here. Now after five days, everybody say five. Now after about five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in, in, in certain order named Turtleus. I think that's how you say it. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he called upon Turtleus, began his accusation saying, See that through you, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places most notable, noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courteous courtesy a few words from us. Here is Paul standing before Felix, a man who, according to the biblical scholar and secular historians alike, had no business being in a position of power. It says, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in a curtain order, a certain order named Tertullus. These gave evidence to governor against Paul. Paul had been in Caesarea for five days when one of the most most famous lawyers of his time, an eloquent speaker named Tertullus, arrived from Jerusalem to argue against him. It's interesting to me that Ananias made the journey along with Tertullus. At this point, Ananias was 80 years old. And the trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea was an arduous 60-mile journey. For Ananias to make such a difficult trip at his age to see Paul to go on trial before Felix speaks to me of the great degree of animosity he felt in his heart toward Paul. Verse 2, it says, And when he was called upon, when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to you by this, by this nation, by your foresight. And it's something he says, Seeing that we enjoy great peace peace there were riots breaking out constantly this makes no sense to me prosperity felix had robbed the people blind and had appointed corrupt leaders you can look in history of that i read commentator after commentator of this guy felix was not a good guy whatsoever now we get to verse three it says we accept it always and in all places most noble felix 
with all thankfulness, nevertheless not to be tedious to you in any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Everyone in the country knew Felix was a rat. Yet Tertullus had came on with creative language and flattery, knowing his case would be strengthened as Felix drank it all in. Now we see verses 5 through 9. For we have found this man, talking about Paul, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by, and with great violence took him out of our hands. Basically, he's saying Paul is a pest. Wherever he goes, he causes riots and problems. Uh, look at this in um, verse 5. He says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The enemies of the early church found this interesting. The enemies of the early church called the believers either Christians or Nazarenes. Christians or little Christ was meant to mock the Lord. And Nazarene called attention to the fact that he was from Nazareth. The hick town about which Nathaniel asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We see that in John 146 right here. He also goes on in verse 6. He says he even tried to profane the, the temple. Rumor had it that Paul had taken Gentiles into the temple. Although that was not true, Tertullus didn't care about the truth. He simply wanted to make his point and win the case. We also see right here where it says, We seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Contrary to the testimony here, I, I can't believe a lawyer would lie. Would you? The Jews were not about to judge Paul according to their law. But rather than tear his limb, tear him limb from limb. Remember, it was only through the intervention of Lysias and the Roman army that Paul's life was to be spared. Now, verses 8 and 9, it's commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So he says, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. So after rescuing Paul from the three riots and one death threat, Claudius Lysias decided he had done his part and turned Paul over to Felix. Now we see in verse 9, and the Jews also assented, maintaining the, uh, these things were so. Those who went with Tertullus and Ananias from Jerusalem to Caesarea were all in one accord. I'm not talking about a Honda here, but they, you know, they were together. United in their stand against Paul. So now we get the defense before Felix. This is so good. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found in me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they accuse of me now. Uh, accuse, they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way with which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. 
both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object it. They had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead. I'm being judged by you this day. So Paul acted as his own defense lawyer. Paul addressed Felix with the only truthful thing he could say about him. Felix, it's true. You've been here many years. So now in verse 11, it says, Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to, to worship, and then either found in me the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the one of which they now accuse me. So these men speak lies, rumors, in, in innuendos. They cannot present any proof whatsoever. This is what he's saying. Then he gets to verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Do you guys believe that? So he's saying, these are the things of which I am guilty. I'm a follower of the way. I'm a believer in the scriptures. I'm waiting for the resurrection. And that's something. Now we get to verse 16. He says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He's saying, I have a clean conscience toward God and men. Right? And then we get to verse 17. Now after many years, I come to bring alms and offerings to my nation. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. So here's the question. Since the law required every accusation to be verified by at least two witnesses, as we see in Deuteronomy 19, where were the witnesses? I have another question. Not only where were the witnesses, but where were James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem who gave Paul the, Paul the counsel to go into the temple in the first place? Tertullus, Ananias, and the elders made the journey to accuse Paul. Why did no one make the same journey to defend him? Acts 24, 21. I'm just putting this out there because you can imagine how Paul was feeling. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. When Paul went into the Sanhedrin and said he believed in the resurrection, he caused a riot to break out. He's saying, yeah, I am guilty of that. Felix procrastinates. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, to let him have liberty, and told him to forbid, told him not to forbid any of his friends 
to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard, heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, isn't this something? He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given by Paul, given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that of of that way, he adjourned the proceedings. So how did Felix get his knowledge of the way or of Christianity? We don't know for sure, but there are references in ancient literature to Felix spending a great deal of time with Simon the sorcerer. After Simon's conversion was called into question in Acts chapter 8, he disappeared from the scene scripturally, but history records much about Simon the sorcerer, including his becoming a friend of Felix. That's just the thought. I found that very interesting. When Lysias, the commander, comes down, we see this right here in verse 22, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Felix said, I'll send for Lysias and see what he has to say about this matter. Why? Because Felix must have begun to suspect that Paul had committed no crime, right? That this was a religious, that this was a religious rather than a civil issue. Verse 23, he says, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for, uh, for or visit him. So keep him in protective custody. This is what Felix is saying, but allow him liberty and visitors. Paul had the opportunity to keep uh, to have his friends come. But as far as we know, there was none that came. Verse 24, and after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Drusilla, this is interesting, a daughter of Herod Agrippa. She was the one uh, worms ate in the amphitheater at Caesarea. That's just a fun fact. Great granddaughter of Herod the Great, who ordered the slaughter of the infants when Jesus was born and great niece of the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. She does not have a good track record. Drusilla didn't have the greatest heritage, and hers is a tragic story. Tradition has it that she was married to a Syrian prince uh, when a magician secretly in the, in the employ of Felix told her she, would, she should marry Felix. Enamored with, an, with the occult... Um, <clears throat> Drusilla, at the age of 19, left her husband to become Felix's third wife. That's just a fun history fact. It says in verse 24, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Paul now stands before Felix and Drusilla. He's standing before him. In verse 25, it says, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Oh, man, there's so much that I wanted to pour into this, but I'm just going to give you a little bit. It says, and as he reasoned. So Paul, an intellectual giant of theology, would you all agree? 
a lover of God, a lover of people, begins to reason with Felix and Drusilla. Our faith is exceedingly reasonable. Our faith is reasonable in every way, logically, philosophically, and scientifically. Uh, I recently read this read this cover story in Time magazine from years ago about a 6,000-year-old frozen corpse discovered in the crevice of a glacier in the Alps one summer. It's funny to me in this very interesting article that the scientific world was shocked to find out that the Iceman was, uh, wasn't bowed over with a sloping forehead and a thick jaw. As he had been hypo, um, hypothesized, my word, I'm, I'm getting fumbled here, hypothesized and accepted as fact for decades, but that he looked just like us. He had lined shoes, sewn clothes, and sophisticated tools centurions or, or centuries, sorry, before he was supposed to. To have been able to do any of those things. Prior to this discovery. Ancient, uh, ancient man was regarded as little more than a glorified ape at best. But the discovery of Iceman. Calls all previous uh, suppositions into question. If only these scientists had read their Bibles. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been surprised. Truly the word is reasonable. Amen. It says about righteousness. Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla concerning the nature of righteousness. Felix and Drusilla were not righteous. Their life was filthy. Their history diabolical. They were not liked by the people they ruled and were not trusted by even their own household of slaves, servants, and companions. But Paul must have told them that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become brand new, as he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Felix Drusilla, you can have a new beginning. You can become righteous in Christ Jesus, Paul must have said. When you were saved, not only did Jesus come into you, but just as wonderful, just as fabulous is the fact that you were hidden in him. Therefore, when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus. When you finally understand this concept, how your walk will change. No longer will you think, God won't listen to me because I'm such an idiot. Now you'll say, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees his son. <clears throat> he also reasoned with him in self-control. Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla concerning the need of self-control. We live in a world that knows every little uh, of temperance, self-control, or moder- knows very little of temperance, self-control, or moderation. Would you agree? That is why our world is emotionally bruised, physically wiped out, and spiritually dead. Temperance is so good and so necessary. Let your moderation be known unto all men. From Paul, Philippians 4, 5. Lead self-controlled lives and you'll be blessed. And he also reasoned with them about judgment to come. Finally, Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla concerning the nearness of of judgment while he was while he was president harry truman oh i I read this in a commentary and i had to put this in here harry truman was awakened at 3 30 a.m one morning by an energetic young aide mr president i'm sorry to wake you he said but i had to inform you that the commissioner of highways just died and i was wondering if you would be open to to my taking his place disgusted by self 
such self-serving audacity, Truman is said to have replied, son, it's okay by me if it's okay with the undertaker. <laughs> the statistics on death are conclusive. Ten out of ten people die. Yet most people refuse to spend any significant time contemplating the fact that they're, that they're dying. Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla, reminding them of the nearness of judgment and the reality of eternity. Felix was afraid. The Greek word for afraid is the same word used to describe the earthquake. In other words, Felix was literally shaking and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will, carry, I will call for you. The tactic of the enemy is always whisper in the ear of a man or woman who is convicted. You don't have to decide right now. Think about it a little longer. You always know the, vo the voice of Satan when you hear, Take your time. There's no hurry. Just sleep on it. Amen. Acts 24, 26 says, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. You have friends in Jerusalem, Paul is basically saying. In fact, you have friends all over the world. If they care about you, they'll pay for your release. You see, Felix sent for Paul, for one reason, not to engage in spiritual discussion, but to attempt financial manipulation. Isn't this just like the devil? Acts 24, 27, we're coming to the end. But after two years, Porcius Fest, Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Felix was kicked out of power. We read this in history. Called back to Rome and replaced by Festus. Why? A riot broke out in Caesarea between the Greeks and the Jews. When the Greeks emerged victorious, Felix vented his frustration with the Jews by ordering the Greeks to go throughout the city, uh, bludgeoning Jewish men, raping Jewish women, and plundering Jewish possessions. When Caesar heard about this, he immediately sent for Felix. So Felix lived out the rest of his life in disgrace in Rome. What happened to Drusilla? Two years after this event, in Europe, on a shopping spree, when Mount Vesuvius exploded, she was caught in, the lava of, caught in the lava of the volcano and died at the age of 21. Felix and Drusilla both had an opportunity to hear the gospel, but they put off making a decision. The statistics used to be 82% of all Christians are saved at the age of 19 or younger. The lower the age, the higher the percentage of those who make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Why? Because a person who puts off a decision saying, I'll think about it. I'll wait until later. I, I, I want more information. Will find himself falling into a pattern that becomes more and more difficult to break. He trembles when he says no to the Holy Spirit the first time. The next time he hears the gospel and says no, he trembles less. The third time, it's pretty easy to say no. The fourth time, it's a piece of cake. This happens not only when the Spirit is convicting unbelievers, but also when he convicts Christians. The first time we are tempted to do wrong, we tremble. The second time temptation comes our way, it still kind of bothers us, but, but not as much as it did the first time. The third time bothers us a little less, and the fourth time giving in to temptation doesn't bother us at all. The conscience must be guarded very carefully because it can become seared 
very easily. We say this, we see this in 1 Timothy 4.2. Speaking lies and mock in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. In fact, not only will our conscience become seared or desensitized, it will become evil. Justifying wrong and whispering to us, don't worry about what you're doing or show or the or the show you're watching, that's simply the way our culture is. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just life. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I love this scripture. Having our hearts sprinkled from all, from an evil, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Felix and Drusilla went from having a tender conscience shaken when they felt the convicting work of the Spirit, to having a seared conscience when they didn't tremble quite so easily, to having an evil conscience where they were only interested in making a deal monetarily. The result, their lives were destroyed and they were damned eternally. You might be saying, what if I'm doing stuff that used to bother me but doesn't anymore? What if I have a seared or an evil conscience? Is there any hope for me? The answer is yes. The Lord is so faithful. He comes to us over and over again, giving us the opportunity to get right with him. In Genesis 6, 3, God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I'll come to you. I'll speak to you, but I'm not always going to wrestle with you. Closing statements. There are seven takeaways from tonight's discussion at Acts, in Acts 24. You, call, you recall Lysias, the Roman commander, never used violence. He properly protected Paul against the murderous plot devised by the Jewish leaders. After the smoke settles from Tertullus' overblown address, Paul calmly steps up to give his defense. His words are brief, accurate, and well-placed. It is in, this, in these courtroom settings we find the seven takeaways for responding to criticism. You may find, as I have, that they come in handy when the darts fly in your direction. Number one, he refused to be caught up in the emotion of the charges. The opposite is a typical first mistake that most of us make, not Paul. As you will notice, his opening line is pleasant. I cheerfully make my defense. Cheerfully. Cheerfully? Really? By now, the man ought to be blazing with indignation. You would think he'd be mad. If it was me, I'd be mad. Even though he had been labeled a real pest and called a ringleader of a cult, Paul graciously acknowledges the opportunity to give a factual reply. It is immediately obvious how he could respond with such seasoned ease, reasoned ease. He refused to let his emotions take the lead. That's lethal in any argument, especially in a courtroom. When we lower ourselves to the, the, uh, ourselves to the overcharged emotions of accusers, our anger is unleashed and straight thinking caves into irrational responses and impulsive words. But Paul doesn't go there. Isn't he amazing? Number two is this, how he dealt with his critics. Number two, he stayed with the facts. In essence, he said, you check my record. Twelve, years, Twelve days ago, I went up to worship. You can ask those who were there. In a deliberate logical manner, Paul reviews the, the events to which he, his accusers referred. He reports, neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying, carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. 
The apostle never blinked. He merely unwrapped the facts. One, two, three. The strategy not only kept him on target, it enhanced his credibility in the eyes of the governor. Verse three, not verse three, number three, how he dealt with his critics. He told the truth with a clear conscience. This this bears a close watch. With laser-like confidence, Paul states, but this I admit to you, that according to the way with which you call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law. And this written in the prophets, I have a hope in God, which these men cherish uh, themselves that they're that they're the law or sorry, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both righteousness and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. It's brilliant. Paul Paul fueled his defense with carefully chosen words that caused his hearers to identify with his position and not feel alienated from it. Trust began to grow. Credibility finds its origin in integrity. Allow some space here on behalf of you who find yourself accused and needing a solid defense or defense to convince a critic. Two words came to mind. Avoid falsehoods. If you have already breached the truth, go back now and correct it. Admit you're wrong. Stepping over a lie or ignoring a misdeed weakens your case. It will give you needed courage to do that if you will remember the truth sets you free. Go with the truth every time. He told the truth with a clear conscience that freed his mind to set forth his defense in a most convicting manner. By now, his accusers are starting to squirm. Number four, he identified the original source of the criticism. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusations if they uh, if they should have anything against me. Now, that's what I call putting one's finger on a, a crucial nerve. And he was right as rain in, in effect. Where are my accusers? The only ones present were people with secondhand information. Turtleus, the high priest, and a group of onlookers who were playing the false role of eyewitnesses. Paul exposed the absence of his original critics, leaving the case against him based on hearsay. Few situations create more problems than shadow boxing with absent, absent critics. Spreading the venom of anger against someone to people completely unrelated to the matter is an is insidious, cowardly strategy. Would you agree? Paul deals with the vile tactic head on as he contends. I know my accusers are the, Jew, uh, are the Jews from Asia bringing other people into the situation to offer casual, unreliable opinions. Only complicated things. It only complicated things. Credibility gets undermined and truth vanishes like the morning fog. Paul gave it to them straight by by fingering the original source. I don't know where you find yourself in this story. Obviously, this is a first century setting uh, far removed from your present situation. But if you are at the process of casting stones at criticism, uh, stones 
uh, casting stones of criticism. Throw them only at, at the ones with whom you have a dispute. Then when, then when held accountable, have the integrity to say, I threw that stone. If you can't do that, take your stones and stick them in your pocket and go home. Everyone will be better off. I've rarely been hurt by the original source. My deepest wounds have been inflicted by second or even third-hand sources. Paul knew the futility of lobbing countermeasures at ambiguous targets. He locked onto the source while unloading his arsenal of facts. Number five, he would not surrender and quit. I love that about Paul. Don't you guys? Hasn't that been so good about Paul? He never surrendered. That alone convinces us that he is a man of grit. He is like a pit bull on a thief's leg. The man will not let go. I find such a tenacity invigorating, especially in the face of my own relentless critics. He squinted his eyes and roared, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they, they found when I stood before the council. He wanted them to name his wrong, state it plainly for all to hear. Their silence at, at that point was eloquent. He knew their hollow accusations fell flat like dead wood uh, hitting pavement. He was never tempted to walk off the scene in exasperation. Never once treated or threatened, threatened to quit uh, amid the injustice of it all. He stayed calm and courageous. Even after numerous beatings, another string of false accusations didn't faze him. He stood firm in the truth. Paul managed to get up and get going by counting on God to carry him to where he couldn't go on his own. You say, uh, I'm walking as best as I can, and the road is getting steep. From Paul's example, my advice is hang on. Don't quit. The Lord will honor your resolve. As Paul stood firm, little beads of sweat popped out of Felix's forehead. His knees weakened as he stood to his feet. He caved and, and ordered that the court session be adjourned. He realized that to proceed meant a long fall off that weak limb. Thanks to Paul's sharp set of facts, governors, uh, the governor don't like losing face. And since he knew... More than he was letting on, he dodged the truth and declared a recess. Sometime later, his Jewish wife and he together listened to more of Paul's com com convictions regarding Christ Jesus. Again, the truth penetrated and Felix again went pale. Frightened by Paul's convicting words about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, he, he shut down the proceedings. Luke records the response in vivid terms. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. He often spoke with Paul following that session. But we know nothing of those conversations. After two years, Felix's ears went deaf to the truth. He moved on to obscurity, leaving Paul alone and cold in, prison, in a prison cell. Felix's successor was, was the infamous Festus. Felix modeled beautifully what a human weasel might resemble. His successor, Festus, shared a similar distinction. We've already covered the peril of following uh, people-pleasing leaders. Though Luke tells nothing of Paul's response, his silence on the matter leads me to believe he handled uh, that with, with the same remarkable attitude. That brings us to our next observation on the way Paul handled criticism. 
it may be the most amazing of all. Go back long enough to remember the words, two years. He did not become impatient or bitter, number six. For two years, he pounded the drums of truth before Felix. And nothing happened in his favor. Nothing, nothing. He waits for a break. A year passes. Nothing changes. No response. Another cold winter. Another spring. Still no movement. Finally, he hits the two-year mark. And Felix leaves the office, ignoring Paul, who is still sitting in prison. Luke records... Nothing that leads us to believe Paul suffered from any level of depression, bitterness, or regret. Luke records nothing of this because there wasn't any. Then Festus takes office, as we, uh, as we will see next week. And his first order of business was a trip up to Jerusalem to meet the same sorry band of Jewish leaders breathing charges and threats against Paul. The plan of those dim bulbs were to lure Paul back to Jerusalem for a hearing, ambushing him en route. Though determined, they were slow learners. Festus agreed to a hearing in Caesarea as he promised to reopen the case against Paul. He ordered a tribunal session in less than two weeks at which Paul would be present. The scene was all too familiar for a seasoned apostle. Surrounded by a group of prejudice, uh, albeit pious-looking Jewish Leaders leave leveling empty accusations against him. Paul again rises to offer a calm reply. This time he condenses the entire speech to what amounts to 19 English words. I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Not a trace of anxiety can be found in his words. No impatience, no, embitter, no bitterness. Actually... It's what he doesn't say that's so remarkable. He could have reminded them of his God-appointed apostleship. He could have made a strong case for his academic scholarship. He could have complained about being held in prison unfairly or driven hard the point of his blameless reputation amongst the Sanhedrin. But he didn't. He stood before the new governor and said, What is said against me is wrong. I have made no offense against the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Paul remembered the Lord's promise made to him years earlier. He knew God's plan included a visit to Rome. Knowing that his heavenly father keeps his word, Paul rested in God's faithfulness. That leads us to the last principle. He stood on the promises of God. Underneath all the visible stuff, that's how he made it. He clung to the people of what the Lord had said that un that got him through many a dark night. It didn't take Festus long to confer with his advisors and come back with a ruling. To Caesar you shall go. Paul knew it all along. No pipsqueak Roman governor could outwit the Almighty. Though at times God's wheels grind slowly, his plan prevailed. Paul would soon find himself on his way to the capital of the world. But before that would become a reality, there was one more defense Paul must make before Herod Agrippa. We will look at this next week. All right? And it was a lot tonight. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Did you guys get something out of tonight? I hope you did. Man, what a story of Paul. A man of tenacity. All right? Amen. Well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this. Lord, we thank you for this word tonight. Lord, I just pray that 
just as we looked at those seven things uh, of how Paul came against the critic, Lord, I just pray that we would be biblically sound in that, that we would not have any kind of um, animosity in our hearts, but Lord, that uh, that we would uh, we would rely on you and rely on your spirit on the inside of us. Lord, I just pray that we we cast emotions to the side and we stand in faith. And we, we pray that our, but our words out of our mouth connect with the words and teachings of the word of God. And Lord, I just, I just pray that, uh, Lord, this tonight, that something grabs a hold of us. Lord, if, if that's us, what Felix did, of how, how slowly but surely he knew the word coming in, but he rejected it slowly out of his heart. Lord, I just pray that we would not have a conscience that is seared as with a hot iron. But Lord, that we would take the word... And we would run with it, that we would be obedient to the word, that we'd stand on the promises of God. Lord, I thank you for the promise that you gave Paul and that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Lord, I pray for the mom. I pray for the dad that is in this room that may be up against something. Maybe the husband, maybe the wife, maybe the business owner that are up against something. Lord, I pray that we would rely on the promises of God, that you never leave us and that you never forsake us. We stand on the promise of God. That uh, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are the healer. We stand on the promise of God. That you are the provider. We stand on the promise of God. That you are the deliverer. You are the redeemer. And so God, right now, just as Paul got that word that he was headed to Rome. And that you would be my witness in Rome. Lord, I just pray that we would stand on your word that's been faithful to us through generations. And that you're faithful to perform it. Lord, we stand on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio. Through the website, arenaoflifechurch.org, or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week.